Good morning. You ever wonder why you do the things you do? You ever just kind of sit back and reflect on that and you say, well, where'd that come from? Why do I always end up doing that? Those of us who are getting a little bit older, I'm starting to put myself in that group now. Um, I think we think about that a little bit more often, maybe. There's theories out there of why we do the things we do. Um, one of the most common theories, uh, I say one, I say theories, because it's kind of two, is the concept of nature and nurture. What is nature and nurture? Well, nature and nurture is in the... Is, uh, getting human development. I know Ali's had to study that and Stacy's had to study that before. It's a concept of who you biologically are, like from genetics, i.e. your parents, versus how you were raised, the environment you were raised in, um, the community you were raised in. So there's kind of a, de a debate there. What has the biggest influence in who you are and why you do the things that you do? Who you are naturally biologically, genetically, versus how you were raised. So uh, the debate is, uh, which one has the biggest effect? And this is going on for years, and it's still out there. They've actually seen twins who were separated at birth, identical twins, who never met each other until after 40 years they came together, and they had amazing similarities. At the same time, uh, siblings raised uh, in the same family, can grow up and one can be a doctor and the other one can be a murderer, you know? So they say, well, that was the difference in their nurturing. Or they responded differently to it. Why do we have the desire to know why we do what we do? One answers, don't we? Why do I do that? We want some kind of answers, even if they're fatalistic answers, even if they're answers like, well, I just always do that because my daddy did it before me and his daddy did it before him. That's just the way it is. Or we want a better future. Well, that's the way I was raised. But when I raise my children, I'll be different, right? I'll give them a better nurturing environment. So the concept is this. If you have a better biological environment, you have a better nurturing environment, and or you should have a better outcome. And conversely, if the... Nature's looks bad and the nurturing doesn't look so good. A horrible outcome. Horrible outcome. Well, let me give you an example of a child growing up and the nature and the nurture, nurturing that this child had growing up to be a man. First is nurturing environment. He was growing up in a very famous family. Now, most of us know when you grow up in a famous family, that's not usually conducive to normal childhoods and, and a good upbringing. Being in the public eye with a certain image to live up to usually doesn't help. In this family, he had many stepbrothers and stepsisters. And he would be a middle child at best, with what some of us would say is a middle child syndrome. Since his father was rich, there was a large inheritance. But since he was like 
seventh down on the list. In that culture, he couldn't expect much. The examples of his older siblings were, were less than ideal. Uh, they included rebellion against parents, attacking of the parents amongst themselves, and it even included incest, rape, and eventually murder. Eventually, this child would find out that he actually had an older sibling who died soon after birth, and that he was born soon after as a, as it were, consolation prize. What do you think about that nurturing environment? Kind of starts to make you feel better about the way, the, the way you were brought up, huh? Not so bad. How about his nature? What were his parents like? What were in the genes? What was the genetic code? Well, his father certainly had redeeming qualities, but he was also shown in public to have been involved in adultery, in deceit, in premeditated murder. This child would find out that his father had orchestrated the death of his mom's first husband. That's who his father was. Though being a religious figure, his father had lived for some time in hypocrisy, not owning up to his sin until, until being confronted directly. If nothing else, his mother was guilty of a lack of discretion, a lack of modesty. She first caught the eye of his father by letting him see her bathing from his house. What hope does this child have? If you were this child, what hope would you have? Though I don't know everyone's story here. I would venture to say that most people don't have as bad of a nurturing, naturing environment as Solomon did. That's who we're looking at today. Solomon. King Solomon. That's the kind of conditions he was coming from. Let's turn there. Second Samuel 12. As we turn to 2 Samuel 12, ask yourself, what hope does Solomon have? With so many things against him, what chance did he have? What chance do any of us have? And that's why I love this verse. This verse really caught my attention. Because you know what? There's something bigger than your nature. You know that nature that you got from your parents? It's also called in the Bible a sin nature okay and it's also bigger than your nurturing environment you know that nurturing environment that you got from your sinful parents and the sinners you grew up with there's something bigger than all of that praise the lord there's something bigger second samuel 12 beginning in verse 24 then david comforted bathsheba his wife and went into her and lay with her so she bore a son and he called his name solomon now the Lord loved him. And he sent word by the hand of Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. The Lord it's the Lord. Did you catch that? There's a little phrase. This is just after the sin and the repentance. That's that little phrase. Now the Lord loved him. That's the difference. You don't have to sit here and wonder about the way you were brought up 
or what your parents were like to wonder what your future success is going to be based on. This is the key part here. It's the Lord and His love. You see, Solomon had all this going against him. You see? And this one little verse is the key point in his life. Now the Lord loved him. Now if you stop and you think about it, you say, well, wait a second. You know, how is it that the Lord loved him? What was so special about Solomon? Certainly it wasn't his parents. Look how they started out. What did Solomon do to deserve this kind of love? What did his parents do? The reality is I don't really have an answer for you. There's not not really a good answer for what they did to deserve this great love from God. They didn't deserve it. His parents were guilty of adultery and lost a child because of it. His father was guilty of murder and should have died for it. Sure, they were repentant. But does that justify this special kind of love from God? No, it doesn't, does it? We know from the scriptures. That's not how God loves. He tells Israel in Deuteronomy, Do not say amongst yourselves that the Lord has chosen us because we are the greatest of all the nations. Because you weren't the greatest, you were the least. But because the Lord loved you. He said, well, Charlie, you didn't give me any reasons there. He said, loved you because he loved you. That's it. That's who the Lord is. He just loves. He chooses to love. And he doesn't have to wait to find something redeeming in you to love you. Aren't you happy about that? Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned. And fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. We're all there. 1 Corinthians 6 says, So do not be deceived. Adulterers, fornicators, idolaters, all these things we're reading about in Solomon's life will not inherit the kingdom of God. And what does the next verse say? And such were some of you. We're all there. We all have that nurturing, naturing problem, not solution. Don't you love it? And the scripture says, but God, who's great, there's great love with which he's loved us. There's the difference. It's the Lord. The Lord loved Solomon. And I can say to every true believer this morning, I'm going to start off talking to the believers. I can say on the authority of the scriptures, of the word of God, that God says to you today, I love you. You know, I've noticed that that means more to me today than it ever has. Before I was saved, I could never even say that. I love you. I didn't even know what love meant. Now since I've come to know the Lord and I see from his word how perfect he is and the standard is so right and good and I'm so far from it. And he chose me and saved me anyway. Just like he pulled Solomon out of that mire of a family and exalted him and chose him. He wasn't even next in line. Not even close. So for every true believer, God says, I love you. I don't know if you hear that enough during the day. I have to confess as a husband and a father, I don't say it enough. 
But I can say to you this morning on the authority of the word of God, if you know the Lord, he says to you, I love you. I love you. And praise the Lord, it's just because of who he is. He says, I love you, just because I love you. I'm very careful in that I just associate that with the believers. But we say, what about people who don't know the Lord yet? Maybe I'm trying to find out more about God. Does he love me? It says this, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God loves everyone in the world, and he's offering you an invitation to come in. But you know what? You've got to come in. And it says at the, at the door, it says, anyone who wants to may come in. That's coming into the family of God, into that relationship where he, you, can, you can be his child, and he will love you as his child. And as soon as you go through that door, you look on the other side of that door, and it says, chosen before the foundation of the world. You see? Now, I don't know who here knows the Lord. But I can tell you this. If you've come to know the Lord and you're truly a child of God, he's loved you before the foundation of the world. And he chose you to be in Christ before anything was ever made. That's how much he loves you. Romans 5 says this. It says, when we were still enemies, Christ died for us. Still at enmity with God. It says, for a good one, someone might die. For a righteous man, someone might dare to die. But while we were still enemies, Christ died for us. God's great love for us. So what should our response be to see, when we see that great love of God? What should our response be? Well, what was Solomon's response? When he saw the love of God. Turn to 1 Kings chapter 3. Let's see Solomon's response as he was chosen by the Lord and exalted the king. How did he respond to the Lord? 1 Kings chapter 3 beginning in verse 4. Now the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there. For that was the great high place. Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. And Gibeon, at Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night. And God said, Ask, what shall I give you? And Solomon said, You have shown great mercy to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in truth, in righteousness and in uprightness of heart with you. You have continued this great kindness for him, and you have given him a son to sit on his throne, as it is this day. Now, O Lord, my God, you have made your servant king instead of my father David. But I am a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people too numerous to be numbered or counted. Therefore, give to your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, that I may discern between good and evil, for who is able to judge this great people of yours? You see the focus of Solomon in this prayer, in this request? What do you see repeated there? You want to know what's being emphasized in Scripture? Look for repetition. In four verses, what do you see repeated over and over? 
You and yours and your. That's right. Where is Solomon's mindset? God says, what do you want? I'll give it to you. Hey, well, hey, wait a second. All right, I can give whatever I want. You see? But so I think Solomon was humbled by what God had done. You see? And where was Solomon's focus? God was asking Solomon, and Solomon was saying, no, nah, you, Lord. It's all about you. I wouldn't be here without you. It's all for you and about you. Fourteen times he says you or yours or your in four verses. And the only times he talks about I or me is when he talks about, and I don't know what I'm doing. He was probably in his 20s. And instead of being proud, saying, all right, I finally got dad out of the way. I can do what I want. He says, Lord, I need help. You've given me a great responsibility. And I don't know what to do. I need your help, Lord. I need you to, I need, I need you. What a great focus. If you ever see the great prayers in the Bible, you'll see it in Moses, you see it here in Solomon. It's always about you, Lord. It's always about the Lord, not what they can get out of the Lord. This reminds me of Paul. Saul on the road to Damascus. Here he was, threatening Christians, putting him in jail, torturing them. He was going to Damascus to do it some more, to arrest some more Christians. And what happens to Saul? He gets arrested. The Lord appears to him. And he only has two questions, really, for the Lord. Lord, who are you? And the Lord shows him who he is. I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. You're persecuting my people. You're persecuting me. And then... Saul just says, Saul, then Paul says, Lord, what would you have me to do? What would you have me to do? I love the humility in that. What else, how else do you respond to so great a love? Where God takes you from the worst of situations, and such were some of you. You've been sanctified. You've been chosen. You've been exalted to a higher position. It says in Ephesians 2 that we're seated with Christ in the heavenly places. What should we do? Lord, what would you have me to do? Lord, I don't deserve any of this. I don't deserve heaven. I don't deserve being with you forever, walking with you now. Lord, what would you have me to do? I see this as a a very humbling experience, a very... um, it's the right response to be humble. If we could turn to James chapter 4, it's, it's by way of contrast, but it still speaks about this concept of humility. Because we have two responses, don't we, in our life. We can focus, as a believer, you can focus on the Lord and you'll be humbled. And you can draw near to the Lord. Or you cannot. And James is dealing with the not here in chapter 4. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? That's James chapter 4 now in verse 2. You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight in war. And you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. 
Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? But he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I appreciate this challenge. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. What's it saying there? If you humble yourself in light of what God has done and draw near to him, he's going to draw near to you. He goes on to say that in the next couple of verses. Draw near to the Lord in humility of what he's doing. What's the alternative? The alternative is focusing on yourself. See, the prayer here in Solomon is exactly the opposite. You ask and miss that you may spend it on your pleasures here in James. So we have a choice, don't we? To respond to the Lord proudly and focus on ourselves. And really, what are we doing? Like it says here, it's really just being worldly. That's really what it is. And, that, and that's spiritual adultery. Or we can humble ourselves and draw near to the Lord. And if we will, he, he'll draw near to us. We lower ourselves he picks us up. That's what Solomon does. Here he's the king and he says, I'm just a kid. I don't know what I'm doing, Lord. I need your help. What does the Lord do? He says, okay, I'll help you. And he says, oh, by the way, since you didn't ask, you asked how to rule my people. And you didn't ask for honor. You didn't ask for riches. I'm going to give you all of that. So you will exceed everyone. Why? Because Solomon put the Lord first. The Lord and his people first. He was humble about it. Is there any wars going on in your life right now? I was challenged that during this week, thinking about peace and war. What's going on in your heart? Is there a war going on? Oftentimes, a war comes from the fact that you've got your heart set on something. And you know what? The Lord doesn't. Most, most of my frustration, you don't want to call it anger anymore, I wouldn't call it frustration. Doesn't that sound better than anger? Right? I'm just frustrated. My anger comes from, my frustration comes from, my own desires. I fight in war in my heart. And the Lord's just saying, I'm over here. Ask me. Get my focus. You'll be all right. And sometimes those, those, those little nicks, I'll just give a small little example of a little nick of the Lord saying, hey, wake up. You're being proud. Okay? Uh, I had a little story. This is a, a small little story, but it, was, it, it caught me by surprise, and I was thankful for it. Um, I, I'm the fix-it guy in my house, so, you know, things break. We have five kids, or six, who, who break things, and um, but I need to fix them. So I need to know where the super glue is at, because when you've got plastic toys and plastic lots of things, you need to know where the super glue is at. And so I asked, you know, it seems like I'm always asking, where's the super glue? Where's the super glue? You know, where, where's the super glue? Now, which in the family of seven is not too unusual a question. Until a voice comes ringing uh, from the other room. Why is it that only one person in the house uses a super glue? And we always seem to be looking for it. <laughs> and I went, Ugh. Wow, that was a good one. And you know what? I was speechless. Actually, I wasn't too speechless. I was laughing. Because it was great. And it was perfect. And it was just a little tidbit of me being proud at first and realizing I just wasn't owning up to the fact that I need to keep track of this stuff better than I do. Good bugging everybody else with it. 
So thankfully, that's a better story. It comes out better than some of the other stories, but that's just a little one. <coughs> I need to let the Lord humble me in those ways. Don't worry, Gary, I didn't say your name. Besides a humble response, what else did Solomon respond to? This great love the Lord had for him. Let's turn to 1 Kings chapter 2. Back a couple chapters to the left, I think, from where you're at. If you had your finger there in 1 Kings, 1 Kings chapter 2. I won't be reading every verse or every part of the verse, but I'll try to keep you informed as I jump around here. 1 Kings chapter 2. This is David's instructions to Solomon. Now, the, day, the days of David, uh, 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 1. Now, the days of David drew near that he should die, and he charged Solomon, his son, saying, I go the way of all the earth. Be strong, therefore, and prove yourself a man, and keep the charge of the Lord your God. Moreover, you know also, uh, in verse 5, Moreover, you know also what Joab, the son of Zeriah, did to me, and what he did to the two commanders of the armies of Israel. And then he says, And he shed the blood of war in peacetime, and put the blood of war on his belt that was around his waist and on his sandals that were on his feet. Verse 6. Therefore, do according to your wisdom and do not let his gray hair go down to the grave in peace. And see, you have with you Shimei, the son of Gera, a Benjamite from Bahurim, who cursed me with a malicious curse in the day when I went to Mahaniam. But he came down to meet me at the Jordan and I swore to him by the Lord, saying, I will not put you to death with the sword. Now, therefore, do not hold him guiltless. For you are a wise man and know what you ought to do to him. But bring his gray hair down to the grave with blood. Verse 28. The news came to Joab, for Joab had defected to Adonijah. Adonijah was another brother of Solomon who tried to usurp the throne as David was getting older. Uh, and Joab had defected to Adonijah, although he had not defected to Absalom. Absalom was an earlier, as we, as we talked about um, son of David who tried to overthrow David. So Joab fled to the tabernacle of the Lord and took hold of the horns of the altar. Then the king said to him, Do as he has said and strike him down and bury him, that you may take away from me and from the house of my father the innocent blood which Joab shed. Verse 32, So the Lord will return his blood on his head. Now verse 33, Their blood shall return their their blood shall therefore return upon the head of Joab and upon the head of his descendants forever. But upon David and his descendants, upon his house and his stone, there shall be peace forever from the Lord. So Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, went up and struck and killed him, and he was buried in his own home, in his own house in the wilderness. Then the king sent and called for Shimei and said to him, and this is verse 36, Build yourself a house in Jerusalem and dwell there, and do not go out from there anywhere. For it shall be on the day you go out and cross the book, cross the brook Kedron, know for certain you shall surely die. Your blood shall be on your head. And then up to verse 41 is Shimei doing exactly what he's not supposed to be doing. And verse 42, then the king sent and called for Shimei and said to him, did I not make you swear by the Lord and warn you saying, know for certain that on the day you go out and travel anywhere you shall surely die? And you said to me, the word I have heard is good. Why then have you kept the why, why then have you not kept the word, the oath of the Lord and the commandment that I gave you? The king said moreover to Shimei, you know as your heart acknowledges all the wickedness that you did to my father David. Therefore the Lord will return your wickedness on your own head. But King Solomon shall be blessed and the throne of David shall be established before the Lord forever. 
So the king commanded Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and he went out and struck him down, and he died. Thus, the kingdom was established in the hand of Solomon. So what else was the response of Solomon to this responsibility the Lord had given him, this place of privilege? He had to clean house. There was leftover issues. There was undealt with problems. There was things, for one reason or another, his father couldn't take care of. And he left it to Solomon. And you can see the laundry list. Watch this guy and this guy and make sure this happens to this, this situation and make sure these things get followed up on. And they weren't going to be easy, were they? They were going to take planning. They were going to take time, communication, execution, literally execution. Nevertheless, they had to be dealt with. There were unresolved issues that needed to be taken care of. This is also true of the Lord today, isn't there? When we humble ourselves and the Lord gets our heart, and He starts working on our focus, and we get it off the things that distract us, and we start putting it on the Lord, and we say, Lord, what would you have me to do? What does He often say? Oh, by the way, you remember that thing we were talking about before? That thing that wasn't easy? That thing that you kind of explained away in your heart? that you really did want to do, that you were easily distracted from doing something else? You ever notice that? It's easiest to get distracted with that thing that's the hardest the Lord wants us to do. Now, I can't do that, Lord, but I can go do this over here. You know? Oftentimes, it's a time of cleaning house, isn't it? I, I know in my life, that's the case. I'm looking at my life and the different areas of my life, and discipline and other things. Time to clean house. And it's not easy. It is old issues. It is things that are hard. Things that the Lord has been speaking to me about. He's a faithful father. We always want to jump to step one to five to seven to twelve. And he says, no, we got two. Step two right here. And after that, there's step three. Okay. And as soon as we get those handled, we can go on from here. What is the Lord upon your heart that you haven't done? What has he spoken to you about? He said, I just want you to do this. Oh, Lord, that's, I'm sure that, that doesn't matter to you. Well, I'd like you to do it. But Lord, I mean, everybody does that. That shouldn't be a problem. Why can't I do it? No, I, I want you to do this about it. I'm sorry, Lord. I, I must not be hearing things correctly lately. I mean, what was that, Lord? You see, and what I found out about the Lord, the Lord is the epitome of, of manners. The Lord doesn't scream. The Lord doesn't yell. He expects us to hear him in a still, small voice. He's a great king. And that's what I picture about David when we looked at last week. David was just saying, oh, I can get a drink from that well of Bethlehem. God expects us to be able to just to hear him like that. So he doesn't have to raise his voice. He is a great king. Look how much he's done for us. Should he have to do more? Should he have to, quote-unquote, raise his voice? He shouldn't. And I've noticed if I tell the Lord no in all those different ways, and I never, you never say no to the Lord, right? People would come up to Jesus. Jesus would say, okay, follow me. And they'd say, oh, no, Lord, let me first, you know. So we're taught well here. So we never say no to the Lord specifically. How do we say no to the Lord? Well, we just don't do it. 
We put it off. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to get to that, Lord. I'll do it later. You know? Can't seem to quite get to it right now, Lord. Patient Father. Patient Father. That's where he stays until we're ready to go forward. Can you hear the voice of the Lord? Can you hear the still, small voice telling you what to go clean up? Solomon took it as God's will from that list from his father. What do we have to do? Okay. Besides that cleaning of house, there was something else that Solomon needed to address. of a large responsibility. First Chronicles 22. If we could turn there quickly. This was a huge responsibility. Large, looming large in David's heart. But God kept it from him. He wouldn't let David do it. First Chronicles 22. Now David said, Solomon, my son, is young and inexperienced, and the house to be built for the Lord must be exceedingly magnificent. Sorry, this is verse 5, First Chronicles 22. And the house to be built for the Lord must be exceedingly magnificent, famous and glorious throughout all countries. I will now make preparation for it. So David made abundant preparation before his death. Then he called for his son Solomon and charged him to build a house for the Lord God of Israel. And David said to Solomon, My son, as for me, it was in my mind to build a house to the name of the Lord my God. But the word of the Lord came to me, saying, You have shed much blood and have made great wars. You shall not build a house for my name, because you have shed much blood on the earth in my sight. Behold, a son shall be born to you who shall be a man of rest, and I will give him rest from all his enemies all around. His name shall be Solomon, for I will give peace and quietness to Israel in his days. He shall build a house for my name, and he shall be my son, and I will be his father, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom over Israel forever. Now, my son, may the Lord be with you, and may you prosper and build the house of the Lord your God, as he has said to you. There it is. There's a house to be built for the Lord. His father David had made abundant provisions. By the time Solomon was done gathering everything, silver and bronze were nothing. There was so much of it. It just didn't matter anything to him, silver and bronze. And most things, so, much, so many things were overlaid with gold. And God had chosen Solomon, a man of peace, to finish the job they would not let David do. Let me ask you this morning, is there a building project to be done? Does the Lord have a building project today to be finished? No, I'm not, I'm not talking about the building project outside. Um, that's, that, that's not the subject this morning. I'm talking about a building project the Lord is doing. He says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. There is a building project. Paul talks about that. Be careful how you build. You want to lay on another one's foundation. There's only one foundation. is Christ. But what's going on? There's a building project happening. Each of us are living stones in that building project. And Christ is continuing to build. 2,000 years ago, he started, and he's still building today. I was just thinking about that. The book, uh, uh, it's called Acts. After the Gospels, there's the book of Acts. People think it's the Acts of 
the apostles? Well, it's the acts of Jesus Christ through the apostles. What's it today? It's the acts of Jesus Christ through the church today, through you and me today. God is continuing to build a church. Who is that? It's sinners. Remember like we said at the beginning? We were just like them. We're no better than anybody else. The difference is Christ. He's all the difference. And he's the one who's saving people. And how is he doing it? Well, has he made provisions? Remember, David made provisions. He got wood from Tyre and Sidon. And, and there's gold and silver. I mean, I can't imagine how much was there. Do you think Christ has provided any less for his people? The scripture tells us that we have everything that pertains to life and godliness. That all the things we're talking about and all the things we struggle with, there's more than enough there in the scriptures. God's given us his complete word. We have the whole Bible, which, as, as the book says, Sodom had no Bible. David had no Bible, not much. He had a little bit. He had the complete word of God. We have gifts. Jesus went up to heaven, and when he went to heaven, he gave gifts. Every gift that we would need to build the church. We have a building project. What do you need? You need plans, right? And, and permits, but we won't talk about those. It's our subject. Plans, permits. You need building material. You need a time and a place. Do we have a plan? We have the Lord's perfect plan. He's building a church. And there's no way you would ever have this group of people in this room if it wasn't for Jesus. There, there's over probably half a dozen different nationalities, dozens actually, nationalities, races, just represented in this room. Interests, not to mention characters. There's no way we'd be here. Who does that? Jesus does that. He is building a church. He has a perfect plan. Building materials. Here he, he, he says, here it is. Take my word. This is your building material. This is what you're, I'm going to use in the lives of people to see them saved. It's going to come through the word. There was someone who's coming out to the Bible study, and he just said, well, it can't just be all about studying a book. I said, well, actually, there is something about just studying a book. God has told you everything you need to know. It's right here. You don't have to go climb a mountain in the Himalayas. You don't have to go get crucified on a cross. God has put it all right here. This is the building materials. The time, when's the time? It's now. Until Jesus comes back. And then there'll be a time when it's too late. Where's the place? It's right here. We can start building right here. In Fremont, Union City, Hayward, Newark, to the uttermost parts of the earth. What are we missing? I'm only missing one thing in the building project so far. I haven't said it. Workers. Workers. That's right. Isn't, that, isn't it interesting that the only thing Jesus said to pray for? He says, pray ye the Lord of the harvest to send out workers, laborers, contractors for Christ to build his church. Jesus is going to build his church. 
and he's requesting volunteers in the building program. And like any other building program, there will be delays or apparent delays. There will be discouragements and setbacks. And nevertheless, the church is going to get built. And you know that craftsman? Every time he walked by that temple, huge, glorious Solomon's temple, every time he went near it, he could go, wow, that's great. And I had the privilege of being involved in that. It's a privilege to work with the Lord. And I'll tell you, being a first-hand observer, it's the Lord's work. You just get to help. But to work with the Lord, watch him build his church. And Lord willing, from this church, multiply churches. Wow. To be able to stop and say, wow, look what the Lord did. And you know what? That craftsman of Solomon, he could do that for, I don't know, long as his lifetime. But we're involved and we're working with the Lord and helping build his church. That's an eternal privilege. That's a reward that never stops. What can you say about any other investment you can make with your life? I mean, I sit here at my job and I, I'm, I work at a biotech company for veterinary blood testing instruments. I, I do a job to make sure Fido and Fifi gets a good blood test. What's that going to matter in 100 years? Contractors, building, building with Christ. Solomon finished. Glorious. He had a huge, a huge reign. There was no one like him and all the kings. No one like Solomon. The history books today marvel at how big he was, how great he was. His wisdom was unsurpassed. People would come and show up just to listen to him. And then they would say, wow, your people are blessed to have you. And really it was the Lord. All about the Lord. And he built the temple. It took him seven years to build the temple and 13 years to build his own house. What was the end result? Looking at 1 Kings chapter 8. This is uh, after the dedication of the um, after the dedication of the temple. First Kings chapter eight verse sixty six. On the eighth day, he sent the people away, and they blessed the king, and went to their tents joyful and glad of heart for all the good that the Lord had done for his servant David and for Israel, his people. What do we have here? We have a situation where Solomon was blessed by God and in blessing him, he was humbled and he took on the responsibilities that were before him, but he did it in humility. He realized God was going to, God had blessed him and he had a huge responsibility before him. And he had the Lord's focus and wanted to do what the Lord wanted, whether it was cleaning house or building this great temple for God, this great house for God. 
You know what it had? It had an effect on the people. They just thought, wow, this is great. This is wonderful. As it said in the other passage we read, Solomon was a man of peace. They had peace all around. You see? What happens if we really respond to the Lord's grace in our lives? And we really see what he has for us. And we clean house. We take care of those open issues that we've let fester. Those unresolved grievances. Those bad habits. What happens? We humble ourselves and we deal with those issues. And we get focused not on ourselves. Not on what we don't have that we should have. Not, not on our own desires. But we focus on the Lord. And we start living for Christ in a practical, everyday way. It's going to have an effect on people. What's going to do? It's going to bring peace. That peace of God which surpasses all understanding is going to be ours uninterrupted. Not just on Sundays. Throughout the week, throughout the month, throughout the years of our lives. We set these things aside, put Christ in his first. That's what Jesus said. If any man comes to me, out of him will flow rivers, wells, springs of living water. It's going to have an effect on other people. Joyful and glad of heart. Not bad. Some pretty bad beginnings, huh? The worst of openings. The worst of situations. Solomon, by God's grace, was highly exalted and had a great impact. May the Lord get the glory in doing the same in our lives. Let's pray. Lord, we do want to thank you. We do want to thank you that you, Lord, uh, Lord, you're the expert of making something out of nothing. And Lord, even as it were worse than nothing, uh, we think of uh, the things we read here in the Old Testament and all the examples and bad examples, and we do confess afresh. And so are some of you. But Lord, you're the one who's chosen us. You're the one who's washed us sanctified to set us apart for yourself and lord you're the one who works in our lives and so lord we thank you for this example of solomon we want to humble ourselves lord open our eyes to those areas lord help us to to admit when we're wrong to realize we've made mistakes to get in that habit to peel back the hardened layers of of not listening to you and justifying ourselves, not humbling ourselves in your sight. Lord, help us to clean house, to deal with those old issues, to, to go back to where you want us to go so that we might go forward with you after we deal with them. And Lord, help us to be focused on your great building project. Lord, there's so many things that clamor for our attention, Lord, either coming from without or even coming from within, from our own desires. Lord, help us to set them aside, to say no, Jesus first. And all these other things need to go to the side. They need to be forgotten and simply lost. Lord, we desire that. Lord, we know the impact, the eternal fruit that comes from it. 
the, the, the never-ending reward associated with living for you. But beyond all that, Lord, we just confess this morning, you're worth it. You died to be Lord, and you deserve that we should live for you in a way that brings glory to you. And Lord, certainly it's a privilege. So Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for your gracious dealing with Solomon. And we pray you would apply it to our lives today. Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.